Video Game The Movie The Podcast. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Video Game The Movie The Podcast. I am your first host, Mackenzie Easton. I am your second host, the blue host, Lexi Conwell. <laughs> and I am your third and final host, Nathan Bertram. We have a very special episode for you guys today, the 2001 adaptation of Tomb Raider, Laura Croft, Tomb Raider. The future is yours now, Lara. The all-seeing eye. Groomed by the elite. Have you ever heard of the Clock of Ages? It gives its possessor power of the people of the light. And trained, trained for combat. We can be partners. You might try to kill me. I'm not going to kill you. I said you'd try. Is Lara Croft. Lara Croft. Time to save the universe? Absolutely. Tomb Raider. Tomb Raider. Tomb Raider. A movie that sounds like it's part of a pre-existing franchise, but isn't at this point. Do we have general introduction thoughts on this game or the franchise or the film? Well, yeah, so have any, either of you ever played any of the Tomb Raider games? That's a big no from me. Uh, I played chunks of the first game, like, way back in the day. Never really got into the sequels until some of the later PlayStation 2 ones, but we didn't have any of them, so I didn't play those all the way through either. I didn't really get into the games until the most recent reboot, which was in, I think, 2013 was when that one came out. Uh, and the reboot is really good. It's actually the second reboot of the series because they tried in like the mid-2000s to reboot it uh, a first time, and it didn't go super well. And then there was all the like changes up with uh, the publisher and everything before they wiped the slate clean and started over again. Unfortunately, those games are for discussion on a different episode in the future. Yes. Because we are only talking about the very first ones. Lexi, have you played any of the original Laura Croft Tomb Raider games? I have not played the originals, but I've played like the first chapter or so if you could call it that of the reboot yeah this is going to be an interesting case because this is the first time we have a movie adapted from a game that was then rebooted and readapted from the rebooted game later but so again, that's for later but that's for later for the for the 2018 tomb raider episode we're going to be able to compare things and contrast more uh, but for this episode we're talking about the Angelina Jolie helmed 2001 movie, Laura Croft Tomb Raider, 
a movie thoroughly of its time. Yes. It is the most early aughts, late 90s time capsule action movie that I think I have seen in ages. I I don't think you can even say late 90s because it is so clearly a post-Matrix action film. Nothing like this would have existed two years before in 1998. That's totally, that is totally fair. Uh, The other thing we should probably talk a little bit about is Laura Croft as a figure. Pardon the phrasing. Uh, I can talk a little bit about the games and the hype surrounding the character if you want, because it does, there's some really interesting angles to this. Yeah, at least two of them. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. uh... Sorry, avoiding the elephant in the room for too long here. Laura Croft is video gaming's first sex symbol, basically, right? Pretty much. That's how people know know about her. She's got big titties, or at least she did. She no longer has big titties as of, like, what, the 2013 versions? Yeah, I mean, you could argue that they they toned her proportions down in the uh, mid-2000s reboot. Well, in that she was proportioned vaguely like a human. Like a human, yeah. Her original model is literally a calculating (laughs) error. According to all the references I could find, the character in the games is supposed to have a 36 double D bust size. What? Her proportions are insane, oh bonkers, in the original game. Urban legend has it, it's because they actually broke her model by accident in programming her chest the first time and they just kept it because it was funny to the all-male developers. Yeah. I didn't find anything to corroborate that. It's one of those like famous gaming myths. I think I've also seen it applied to Tifa Lockhart in Final Fantasy VII that they like put an extra digit when they were like typing in the dimensions on the model. I don't know how accurate it is. Nobody seems to... Have, have anything to really concrete to say about it. What we do know is that... So the game started development in 1994 at Core Design, which was owned by IDOS Interactive. And it was a British developer that was working on a game that initially was basically an Indiana Jones riff. The main character was supposed to be a man in the original design, but partway through development, really early, like pre-development, they wanted to see if they could get multiple character options for the player to choose from. So they decided to develop two models, one male and one female. And the de- the designer of the characters, Toby Gard, decided shortly after that, that uh, because it would double the work to do both characters for the cinematics, they decided to cut it down to one. And Toby Gard decided that to set themselves apart from a lot of the other games that were coming out, they would choose the female as the main character. And in doing so, he created what was initially a South American woman named Laura Cruz. But because they were an English developer and they wanted it to play well to an English audience, they played up the Englishness of the character a lot more and eventually changed the name to Laura Croft. And Toby Gard was really hesitant to use sex appeal as a marketing tactic. And since he had a lot of creative control over the first game, they didn't really use it in the first game as such. It was just, here's this character. But because she resonated with audiences as a sex symbol so widely, they kind of took control away from Guard in the sequels and played that up a lot in the marketing to the point where you had images of Lara Croft on magazines wearing designer clothing and like posing like a pinup model. 
Lara Croft is a very interesting character in not early gaming, but like early console gaming, where she's this... Early 3D game yeah. design is what it comes down to. Because like 96, 97 is where 3D became a thing. And she was one of the earliest examples. Uh, the Tomb Raider is one of the earliest examples of the like action adventure game rendered in 3D. So yeah, interesting character, a lot of history, obviously. Uh, paired with a very interesting actress choice, who also has a significant amount of history as a sex symbol, Angelina Jolie. Who is honestly quite likable as Lara. Well, yeah, of all the decisions they made in this movie, casting Angelina Jolie was probably the best one. Yeah, she's very likable, in my opinion. I mean, I think she's a good Laura Croft. And I think they did what they did with her character very successfully. I don't know if likable is necessarily the word I would use, but we can get into that once we yeah. get into it. Well, yeah. I... Now seems like a good time as ever to get into it as such. Uh, who wants to do the basic plot synopsis for this one? Ooh, can I do it? Okay, it's Nathan's turn. Nathan gets to do it. Okay, so we open in an Egyptian tomb. <clears throat> Except not really, because Laura Croft is fighting a robot, and then it turns out she's in like a training simulator inside her mansion, and we meet her and her butler... Hillary and her tech guy Bryce, who seem to be the only staff in this entire mansion. We learn through a series of cuts that her dad is dead, and this is the anniversary of his death. We then uh, discover a secret room in the mansion where Laura's dad has hidden a antique clock that, upon breaking open, is revealed to house a magic clock magic clock that is designed after the eye of truth the illuminati symbol which Mi is fitting fittingly earlier we did see a weird flash or flash sideways to a mysterious group of white gentlemen discussing the need to secure some kind of artifact during the planetary alignment because this movie uses the same plot premise as Hercules. Disney's Hercules. Disney's Hercules, wherein they have to achieve the finding of the artifacts before the planetary alignment passes, and they lose the chance to do so for 5,000 years until the next alignment. So It's one of those movies, folks. <laughs> Is that the plot of Disney Hercules? Disney's Hercules well, revolves no, around it. but it does revolve around the planetary alignment, allowing Hades to release the Titans. I very much remember a different movie, but... Okay. You probably saw it more recently <laughs> yeah. than me. Oh, definitely. I've watched that movie too many times. I've uh, also arguably watched this movie too many times. So anyway, this shady group turns out to be the Illuminati, who are on their search for the Triangle of Light, which is an artifact that will allow them to control time as a god. The problem being that the triangle was split into two pieces because in ancient days it was used irresponsibly to destroy a city. So the ancient people that were the keepers of the triangle broke it into two pieces and hid one of them in the city that was destroyed and the other one in a temple in Cambodia. And then we get the journey wherein the Illuminati are trying to get the pieces of the triangle simultaneously with Lara Croft on her own trying to track them down until the end where they are forced to work together until 
the second-in-command of the Illuminati, who is actually the main villain, attempts a coup in order to get control of both halves of the triangle, except he doesn't know how to activate it. So to motivate Lara Croft to do it for him, he kills her former adventuring party slash possible former lover, played by Daniel Craig, who's around in this movie but isn't that important. So she activates it because she has also wanted to use the time travel powers to save her father, which has been one of her primary motivations for finding the artifacts in the first place. Although she doesn't really break it up very often. No. No. And then she activates the triangle and uses it to go back in time to talk to her father. They have a conversation where her father tells her that it's too dangerous to use and not to use it and that she shouldn't bring him back. Also earlier, she learned that he had been a member of the Illuminati before, which is also not that important really in the grand scheme of things. So she obeys his wishes and goes back to the present, but with just enough time to reverse the events that caused uh, Daniel Craig's death and instead kill Powell, who is the second in command of the Illuminati. Which you'd think would be the climax. But no. Yeah. He pulls the dagger out of his chest and then has a fist fight with Lara. After revealing that he killed her dad. After revealing that he's the one who killed her dad when he defected from the Illuminati. Y'all, this movie is wild. Then she gets away on some dogs and then she's back at the mansion and her butler gives her two guns and they're like, this is cool. Fight the robot again. And her tech guy reveals that he has, he has rebuilt the robot so now she can do more robot training. Yeah, anyways. That was messy, I'm sorry. The movie's messy, so it's fair. Actually, I'm gonna give a, like, a thought at the top here. This movie is fine. It is competent, at least mostly. If I had been a teenager in 2001 and saw this on the theaters in, like, a summer afternoon, I probably would have had a great time. And that's probably, that's all it's going for. It's not trying to be anything more than that. Whatever else you can say about it, it has a consistency of style and quality that surpasses basically everything else we've talked about except arguably wing commander mm-hmm. it's less fun than a lot it's of the things we've talked about true it is less fun than the bad movies we've talked about i think that's arguable the, the like actual bad movies yeah it depends, <laughs> depends on what kind of fun you're looking for yeah it's a taste thing uh i was not bored by this movie like i was by say double dragon it it, it'll keep your attention for the most part although it does get kind of weird and draggy at the second climax yeah (laughs) and the ending is a little bit messy and it's a movie that really screams for very minor script edits there are like two or three things you could do to tighten this movie that would make it 10 times better with minimal effort yeah the other thing that it does have going for it is that however dated it may look now a number of the action scenes in it are actually like really big technical achievements for the time in which they were made. And more of it holds up visually than you'd expect for a movie from 2001. Yeah, the CGI in it is actually, for the most part, pretty good. There's one or two effects that really look dated, but overall, 
there is some heavy use of CGI towards the middle of the movie that holds up fairly well. Yeah, Lexi, thoughts? I think that if you're looking for an action movie, this is pretty solid. Everything they did was, like you said, competent. The scripting was probably the weakest part, but it was fine. Um, The action sequences were entertaining, if not really cool. Uh, Laura Croft is cool consistently all the time to the point that it's pretty one note. Um, that's kind of my issue with her. Like she's so cool and yeah, she, nothing else. She's kind of perfect. Yeah. She she never makes any mistakes. She's always just, she's just so cool. No, she's never off guard. She's never like whenever ha- anyone has a witty one liner to like say like, I don't know, insult her or whatever. She's always got something to fire back. She can take out every enemy at, without killing anyone. She never actually kills anyone in the entire movie. Did you notice that? She's, yeah, she's very of her mm-hmm. time. She's very like early 2000s girl power. I'm a badass. I have no flaws. This is still kind of an improvement over her being a complete object though. Mm-hmm. And I I have seen this movie before. I was pretty drunk, <laughs> admittedly. But this time I did notice the movie doesn't sexualize her as much as I thought it did. They play it up quite a bit at the beginning where there is a number of shots during some of the action that frames her kind of objectifyingly. There's also an incredibly unnecessary shower scene. I will say, Daniel Craig also gets an unnecessary shower scene later, and you see more of his body than Lara's, which is not like, I think, uh, like, oh, that makes it better kind of thing. I just thought it was funny that you almost see Daniel Craig's dick in this movie. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. For quite a while, like, he's just kind of wandering around a room for a solid two minutes just with careful camera placement shading and nothing else but he is framed to be like eye candy in that sequence it isn't like ha funny naked guy it's like look at how ripped this guy is laura should fuck him (laughs) she never does by the way this is not about laura croft this is pet daniel craig's character whose name escapes me i think it's like alex yes it is yeah okay he cannot do an American accent yet. Oh boy, he figures out how to do it. He can do a great Southern accent now, but Daniel Craig did not know how to do a good American accent in this movie. I honestly didn't take him for an American. I didn't realize that was intended. The British actor is playing an American. The American actress is playing an English woman. And I don't actually know if John Voight is uh, American or British. I don't know, but he is Angelina Jolie's dad. But... He's also doing an accent that is not very easily identifiable, <laughs> even though he's supposed to be an English lord. Yeah, but he's dead, so we can give him a pass. <laughs> Daniel Craig's performance in this is probably the weakest performance in the movie, which is weird because I really like him in other stuff. Maybe he just hadn't grown into himself as an actor yet, but he's like just kind of stale here. He's doing a weird kind of stilted Harrison Ford impression most of the movie, which I have to wonder if that was his choice or if that was just what the director was telling him. Yeah, he doesn't seem jazzed about this in interviews. He seems strategic about how he talks about working on this movie in the interview that I read. So yeah, other characters, there aren't really a lot of characters that have any impact in this movie. There's Lara Croft, who is sexy and cool and good at one-liners mm-hmm. there is yeah. daniel craig's alex who is like 
a mercenary archaeologist. He's got a line in the movie where they're talking about Tomb Raiding and how he's a Tomb Raider and Laura Croft's a Tomb Raider. And he's like, Laura's in it for the glory. Yeah. Uh, I'm in it for the money. Which is a pretty good calculation. Which is pretty much his entire character. Uh, they clearly had something in the past. It's not really touched on. One of the things this movie does kind of consistently is act like it's got history without ever fleshing any of that out but not like in a good way <laughs> just in a kind of awkward way like you remember that time in that place right right let's keep going her tech guy uh is in a similar boat with history at late in the movie he's like are we off to save the world again and she's like absolutely and it's like wait a minute <laughs> When did you save, save the world? Bryce lives in an airstream on the mansion yard. By choice. By choice. It is specifically yeah. brought up in conversation that they have 83 empty rooms in the house and he chooses to live in the yard. He sleeps with many small robots on top of him. I don't know what his deal is, but he seems like a nice enough guy. A little bit nervous. He serves as comedic relief and effectively a mini map uh, yeah, at he's, one point in the movie. If you've ever seen Kim Possible, he's basically Wade and Ron Stoppable mixed together. He's just kind of around. Mm. Um, the butler is probably the most useless character because they clearly wanted to have some kind of relationship between him and Lara where like he was uptight and like wanted her to be a lady and she didn't like that but he never has anything to do or say for most of the movie he's just kind of there that is expressed in exactly one scene which is right after she gets out of the shower he tries to get her to put a dress on instead of her adventuring clothes and she uh sassily says that she's not a lady while taking off her towel yeah. And then at the end of the movie, she walks out wearing the dress that he had picked out for her, and he's very surprised that she wore it by choice. That's the extent of that thread. He doesn't have, like, a connection to her dad. He doesn't have jokes, really. He's just... There's one comedic beat where he is, uh, the mansion's getting raided by soldiers, and he gets up in his pajamas, puts on a bulletproof vest, and loads a shotgun, all in the, like, staid and stately manner of a butler. And that's about it. He then steps, steps into basically just loafers and heads out, and Laura Croft has taken care of everyone already. Everything, yeah. yeah. He's... He's not a bumbling butler. He's totally competent. I just think he's kind of boring, I guess. He kind of feels like one character too many. Yeah. In the sense that he's not developed enough mm -hmm. to add that much to the story. So his presence there just kind of sticks out. Uh, there's also Laura Croft's dad, played by Angelina Jolie's dad, John Voight. Okay, this is something that I find really weird and interesting. In none of the games up to this point has Laura Croft's dad ever factored in in any meaningful way. None of the plots revolve around her dad going missing. She has a mentor in, in some of the later games that were made after this, who is not her dad but is just an older man that she knows. I think he's an archaeologist. But even those games don't revolve around him going missing. And yet this movie, as well as the 2018 movie, 
hinge their plots around her dad going missing in the field. And it's pretty clearly a like 90s and even now sexism thing where it's like, well, a woman couldn't have any reason to adventure if it weren't for a man. They couldn't think of a motivation for her. Like, it's okay for Indiana Jones to just be an archaeologist and want to do crazy shit, but she has to want to save her daddy. I I think she definitely is in it just to have fun because she's I don't know she's definitely she's definitely a daredevil but she doesn't connect with people very well I feel like I don't know there's a picture of her in in like a an army unit or marine unit I don't know some kind of military unit and she's surrounded by these men who look kind of dirty and like not necessarily happy because you know they're at war and she's smiling yeah i do think her characterization makes sense for someone who doesn't i just don't think she needs this i think it's telling that they chose this to be the plot even though i think they did her character better Mm. than you'd expect given that they chose this plot If that makes sense. I think the movie would have benefited a lot from her actually going on an adventure before the plot kicks in. Yeah, instead of simulation robot. And it would help resolve a lot of the like emotional problems with the film if the opening scene was her as a child going on an adventure with her dad and like being taught about all of this adventure stuff. And then when she's on a different adventure on her own, like a little bit later, learning that her dad went missing. And then we cut to the like modern day stuff because by virtue of the planetary alignment plot, it doesn't have to be like anywhere near when her dad died. None of this has to be like close together. The time period doesn't matter. The last actually important character is the main villain. Yes, the main villain, Mr. Powell. Manford Powell. Manford Powell, who, (laughs) as a joke, every time I referenced him in my notes, I wrote Mr. Power, because when spoken with a British accent, that's exactly what it sounds like, and I thought it was hilarious. (laughs) Yes, it does sound like that every time. So Mr. Power is a pretty one-note villain, let's be honest. He is... The second in command of the Illuminati, he wants to be the first, so he strikes a deal with Lara to get the opportunity to kill his leader and take control. That's his entire arc. Yeah, he doesn't have a deal beyond that, which is honestly fine. I don't need him to be a sympathetic villain. He has one great scene. One of the best dialogue scenes in the movie is a showdown between Powell and Lara in the audience chamber in Venice that the Illuminati hold their meetings in, where it is just the two of them going back and forth negotiating this deal, but it's a great uh, example of power dynamics portrayed through dialogue, where as he's asking questions about this deal that he wants to make, Lara keeps asking where he sits in the audience chamber and asking if he sits in the big chair or the little chairs. And it's just like a really good toe-to-toe scene where it's done entirely with staging and dialogue and there isn't much action to speak of, but the power dynamics read really well. Uh, So I guess, Lexi, what what do you want to discuss next? Do you have any thoughts about Mr. Powell's? Well... I mean, Mr. Powell doesn't really have much of a deal with him. I mean, he's a skill he's as skilled a knife thrower as she is, at least, uh, which they represent in that same scene when, you know, she threw a knife into the Illuminati symbol. And then at the end of the scene, as she's walking out, you know, he's he'd kind of vaguely threatened her with the knife, and then he just whips around, throws it directly 
on top of her dagger and okay that's pretty cool it comes up later when he kills um alex yeah alex james bond oh that's oh (laughs) yeah daniel craig Uh, i really don't know actors very well fair fair enough he's a lot younger in this yeah i definitely recognize him now um but the thing that i felt was really well done in this movie was the translation of game mechanics into action sequences yeah the scenes the major action set pieces feel fairly well not all of them but most of the major ones feel pretty gamey but in a good way yeah I I felt I noticed it first in the scene with the robot when she's in this tomb, which at first I was horrified because it's like, oh, no, they're just uncaringly destroying this this like sacred place. And it's just like, okay it's just props. It's this is fine. But she's fighting this robot. She's shooting it. And it's like, okay this feels like a like a boss fight. You pile as many bullets into the boss as you can until you reach a point where you can do a like um quick time event with like press x here to jump up on top of the robot smash some button to peel off the the plating and then yank out the wires or like spam the button to not get get your head cut off all that kind of stuff felt very like i could literally just see this as a cutscene with quick time events Uh, i think the one i kind of want to go through just the action scenes because we've already laid out the plot it's pretty basic uh let's just go Action scene through action scene, because that's what this movie's about at the end of the yeah. day, right? So yeah, <laughs> the first action scene is you think you're in an Egyptian tomb and suddenly there's a robot. Admittedly, that threw me out for a minute the first time <laughs> because robot. Um, but it's a pretty good little scene. The robot's scene. never relevant again. No, either. the robot never shows up again. He, well, he does, but he's not important. Yeah. Uh, you think yeah. for a little bit in a later action scene that the tech guy's going to get the robot working to like help Laura fight off some thieves, but it doesn't work. So he just ends up talking to her on the radio. The scene overall is pretty stupid, but it has a certain charm to it. I was just going to talk about the first one a little bit more with, uh, there is a problem that comes in and out in this movie a few different times where it's clear they didn't get quite enough coverage for all of these action sequences. And even some of the dialogue sequences, I don't know, maybe there was like a B-roll that got messed with somehow, or they just didn't have enough cameras rolling, but they make some like jarring cuts. It's not a common enough problem Mm -hmm. that you like are aware of it if you're not watching it to kind of analyze it like I was, but it does have some jarring cuts every now and then where Laura gets knocked over by the robot and then you see her like get out from under the robot, but the next shot she's on top of it and there's not like yeah. an action between those two things. There are occasional jump cuts over actions that we should be seeing and we're not. Yeah, the continuity of action is messy sometimes. It's largely pretty good though. Mm-hmm. I also want to point out in that same scene, there is a moment where she empties both of her pistols and reloads, and in the music track, just as she reloads, there is an audible sex moan. Yeah. Oh, oh, right. Oh, jeez. I forgot about that. We haven't mentioned this yet. The soundtrack (sighs) is possibly the most 2000s thing about this. That's where the, like, Matrix comparisons really get me, because it's super, like... Oh, Techno-y, yeah. it's really awkward by mm-hmm. modern ears. It's it's a bunch of late 90s, early aughts, rock and techno pop and hip hop, all like commissioned for or remixed to be in the movie, which is a very 90s thing. Yeah, it sounds like it wants you to buy the soundtrack. 
the 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 best and worst example being the uh, Tomb Raider mix of U2's Elevation that plays over the ending credits. Yeah. So throughout the movie, there'll be these like expected musical themes of adventure movies where it's like the movie opens with this kind of vaguely ethnic Egyptian-y sounding music like you'd hear in most adventure movies, but then it breaks hard into techno. Um, It's just weird for modern viewers. At the time, I'm sure it was very normal, but I was like six, so I don't really remember the musical trends that well. Um, That was the first major sequence. Uh, The second major sequence I believe is the bungee jump sequence, which is my favorite because it's the stupidest. Mm -hmm. It's dope. Oh, I love it. It's just... It's just insane, yeah, though. This is one of the best pure stunt sequences in the whole movie. So the context is that Lara has taken the uh, magical clock that she found to an associate of her father's to get information on it, and he directs her to Powell, who she doesn't know at this point is Illuminati, uh, but she doesn't trust him, so she brings photos of the clock instead of bringing the actual clock. So Powell then dispatches all of his soldiers that night to raid the mansion to get the clock. In an unrelated decision, Lara is enjoying her nightly bungee jumping in the mansion. Yes, yeah. indoor bungee jumping in the hall bungee before ballet. bed. Yeah, yes. It's clearly some kind it's of bungee ballet. Hobby? Yeah. I don't know. It's they don't explain it. It's just the butler walks by and says Good night. Don't stay up too late. And she says, I'll try not to. And just some bungee jumping in her house. And admittedly, if I had a house that big, it does look very fun. Yeah. (laughs) This sequence is like over the top and stupid, but really fun. (laughs) It is set to classical music. She's bungee balleting through the hall and then the soldiers drop in through the skylight, assuming that she'll be asleep. But she's right there on the chandelier next to one of the soldiers, and that initiates this action shootout. Where she, like, gets to do things like wall runs and, like, launching dudes at each other with bungee cords. <laughs> it's absurd. There's no reason it should exist like this, and the only reason it exists is because the Matrix got to do cool non physics stuff, and so they were like, I want to do stuff without physics. Bungee cords will work, right? Yeah, uh, in in an interview with uh, Cine Fantastique, the magazine, the director talked about how he wanted to achieve like some Matrix-like stunts, but wanted it to s- still feel grounded. So that was his his uh, his decision was: what if she is doing bungee jumping the whole time? Uh, these all, there's all these soldiers with all these machine guns. And they're all absolute stormtroopers. They cannot hit anything at oh, no, all. And it's like, you're literally right in front of her. <laughs> it was it was to the point where it's like, this is kind of unbelievable, but it, it's fine because she never actually kills anyone with a gun either, even though she's firing bullets left and right yeah. at various she, points in the movie. She has two pistols and bungee kicks. Yeah. An interesting production note is that they actually built a specialized camera crane rig in order to track the motion of her wall run so they could always keep her face in center frame while she was running, which is kind of neat. It's a really cool shot. Yeah, I was actually pretty impressed with that. I wondered if it was CGI or something, but you're saying it was a crane. That was all practical. They they did a lot of... Uh, a lot of the stunt work on this was um, 
done practically. And Laura, um, not Laura Croft, uh, Angelina Jolie was apparently really gung ho to do most of her own stunts. Which shows more than the uh, director and stunt coordinator actually wanted her to do because they didn't want her to injure herself. Yeah, it is important to note that at this time, Angelina Jolie was like really hot. Not, I mean, she's all, still really hot. Uh, I mean, she's got a fair bit of plastic surgery now. She was a big deal. Yeah. She had just won her first Oscar. She was very much hitting the like early peak of her career. Yeah, it, it, it was early on, but it was when she was starting to get a lot of buzz around her career. Mm-hmm. So, uh, obviously, very cool bungee jumping sequence. This immediately goes into another action sequence where she's not bungee jumping anymore. She has snuck her way into the garage? Something like that. Where they keep all the fancy cars and also the guns. Yeah, she keeps a bunch of guns down there, but she can't get it open in time. So she uses a s- nail gun or something that she puts, uh, I don't know what it is, but it she puts screwdrivers in it and knocks people out with it yeah. with the help of, of, of her tech buddy who helps her like aim, basically. It's like this. there's someone over here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, I, I think what it's supposed to be is a air compressor hose that she is loading screwdrivers into and then firing off (laughs) which is also amazing and i love yeah bryce keeps directing her to where the enemies are by telling her which car they're next to yeah (laughs) because apparently she she knows her garage well enough that she knows where all of these fancy cars are parked so yes after launching a couple screwdrivers into dude's heads she uh non-lethally car keys yeah, non-lethally shooting screwdrivers into dudes' heads. She gets a one-liner about finding her car keys, which is pretty funny, uh, blinds all the rest of them with her car lights, and successfully like gets rid of all of the thieves, but they've gotten the magic clock. Yeah. Yeah. So she's sad. The next day, her dad sends her a letter from beyond the grave, which is how she learns where to go. He, he set up a letter to be sent on a certain day if he wasn't around to send it. Yeah. It's not that big a deal. It, it makes sense in context. It's how she finds out through William Blake poetry yeah, where yeah. the first temple is, which is cool. I don't. It's never explained how the Illuminati knows where the first temple is. Yeah, it's they not just really. I, I think it's because they are descendants of the people who broke the triangle, but some of the, like not necessarily the people who broke the triangle, but or like the organization is related to the the creators of the triangle in some way such that they want it back and they know where it is. It's never really made explicitly clear. It's not like a problem. It's yeah. just it's weird when you have one side of the pro- of the like conflict having to solve puzzles to locate things and the other side is just always there. Well, it's because she's the video game protagonist. Oh yeah, no, it makes it functions. And it, I get why it's the way it is. But it is, like, narratively weird. Yeah. Um, I mean, she even drives, like, a video game protagonist. Uh, yes. She she drives Badly. a motorcycle through the city at extremely high speed, much in the way that I would drive a motorcycle or car through a video game city um, because of how video game controls typically work. There's not a whole lot of 
throttle control, and so you just end up going as fast as you can and dodging all the cars and ignoring stoplights, and it just is fine, and everyone accepts it. it I was just like, ah, oh, yes, this is still a video game. Yes. So, she goes to Cambodia, the location of the first chunk of the triangle. She is aided in finding the door by a mysterious psychic child. <laughs> Before that, I want to point out that Tomb Raider did the drop a car from an airplane with parachutes gag before Fast and the Furious. Oh, yes. This is important. I forgot all about this. She gets to Cambodia by calling in a favor with her military friends to drop a Jeep out of a plane. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. She's just in the driver's seat of the Jeep and they drop it out of a plane with some parachutes and then she's not driving in the next scene she's just walking no well so she drives briefly uh to get like around the temple and then she gets out okay never mind she does drive for a little bit the jeep is worth it so yes she gets (laughs) to the temple the bad guys are trying to pull down the front of the statue with just like 50 native guys they found lying around i guess uh i guess they just hired a bunch of local cambodian dudes to be like can you pull on this ancient statue for a while? Oh, I want to bring up a really interesting note here. Uh, they shot some of this movie on location in Cambodia at like the it. actual temple, the exterior shots. And it was the first movie to be allowed to shoot there since 1963 uh, because of the Khmer Rouge regime that was in power in Cambodia over the course of the 70s. Oh, wow. Mm. Yeah. So that's, that is an interesting distinction that Tomb Raider gets to claim. They do thank uh, the Royal Majesty of Cambodia at the end of the movie in the credits, uh, which was interesting. But yes, they arrive at the temple. The bad guys are trying to pull it apart, which does work, by the way. So if you just exploded it, you could always have gotten in there. It's not really that hard. Yeah. Um, they, should just, they should have just brought some dynamite. I mean, if they're going to wreck the place anyway. Yeah, she gets guided to the actual entrance by a mysterious psychic child. So in one of the flashbacks with her dad, he tells her about jasmine flowers and how symbolic they are and to keep an eye out for them. The flashbacks are with her dad are brief, but they're supposed to impl- imply that he has been giving her clues to be able to, when she grows up, find the parts of the triangle and destroy them. So she finds the magical child who silently points her to the entrance to the tomb. And then she looks back and the child is gone. And she notices a patch of jasmine flowers. This happens again later in the movie. And this is the extent to which jasmine flowers are involved in the movie and the entire extent of their symbolism. She doesn't even actually like go into an entrance though. She just kind of picks the jasmine, and then falls through the ground. Oh, yeah, that's right. (laughs) She falls through holes a couple times in this movie. (laughs) This time, she ends up in the temple. We'll fast forward a bit. She does some, like, wandering around underground, answering some riddles, uh, into the first action sequence of the Getting the Triangle saga. There's a big dramatic countdown where she clearly knows the answer, and they're going to do it wrong. So she convinces the bad guy to throw her the clock and she puts it in the right spinning gear and it does reveal the triangle, but also all the statues come to life. This is the first magical thing in the movie so far also. And it's like a good, what, 20 minutes in? Yeah. Uh, I don't know. There might even be more than that. The, The director in that same interview that I read 
uh, said that he wanted the everything above ground to be very realistic. And when they enter the temples, when they go below ground, that's the realm of magic and, and mysticism. Mm. But the robot. Yeah. Like, things aren't grounded in the real world. They're just not magic. No, he also talks about how he wanted it to seem not futuristic, but draw on the, the, the fantastic of the modern day. Mm. Yeah, not grounded. Yeah. Simon, Simon West had a lot of weird conflicting ideas about this movie. The statues are stone statues animated, whatever, you know, spooky stone statues that are very easy to destroy with just bullets. Oh yeah, these things are fragile. They look pretty good though. The CG on the statues is mostly fine because they're rocks and we knew how to animate rocks pretty well by that point. There's some goo (laughs) earlier that looks really bad. It's apparently supposed to be liquid mercury. It does not look like that. It does not look like liquid mercury. I thought it was bad water physics. I just called it the time goo. It's the, the time goo looks bad. Um, the time goo lifts up the triangle and then brings all of the statues to life. So Lara and the bad guys, including Alex, beat up these many, many rock statues who are pretty intimidating looking with their big swords and stuff, but they have like zero weight to them and they explode pretty much upon impact with anything. It's honestly kind of drags on a little bit. Yeah. The introduction to it is also really silly and looks kind of stupid because it involves Lara having to jump onto a swinging pillar that is tipped with basically a spear point and swinging back and forth on it until it pierces the urn full of time goo. Yeah. And it's just an elongated sequence that looks kind of stupid and drags longer than it needs to. The movie wants there to be cool sequences where she's using the like geography of her location to do like cool stunts. Like it, they plant it in the first action scene where she knocks over the pillar onto the robot and then they're trying to follow it up with this pendulum. But it... Which she does use to stab the giant ro- di- giant statue at the end of that fight sequence. Which is cool. It's very video gamey. Oh, it's incredibly video gamey. Also not how pendulum physics work, but yeah, she crashes it into the big statue. After all the little statues are dead, the big statue wakes up and it's got four arms and big swords. All of the Illuminati soldiers leave so that she has to fight it by herself. (laughs) And she has lost the clock, but has the triangle. Half of it. Yeah. So she gets away from the big bads and the big bad statue with her half of the triangle uh, by jumping off of a waterfall very dramatically. Which Alex had her at gunpoint above. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Which leads to her washing up, or I guess she hijacks a boat at some point between jumping off the waterfall, uh, eventually ends up in a Cambodian village. Uh, Which they do shoot beautifully. Like, they yeah. make Cambodia look lovely in this movie. Where she goes to a monastery after she has her call with Powell no. and they set up their meeting. This is actually a moment I, that made me like Lara. She arrives in Cambodia. Somebody, like, greets her at the docks. And she speaks their language to them instead of being a crappy English person. And asks if she can make an international call. Cut to 
this monk that she had talked to <laughs> holding up a satellite behind her yeah. while she's on this call the whole time. It's a good moment. Yeah. Uh, and he seems chill. It doesn't seem like she made him do this. It's funny. Um, and then she goes to a different monk and now she's wearing like nice Cambodian clothing. What I was getting to, she she goes to this other monk to have a conversation about the temples and the triangles and stuff because I guess the monk's have some knowledge of it because they live near the temple. Which seems like maybe this should have happened before <laughs> the temple stuff, but A okay. little bit. And here's where you find out that the monk that is in charge of this monastery knew her father and knows about her quest. This is not important in any way and does not come up again later in the movie. Also, he has magic healing tea. Yeah. Yeah, that too. He heals her bullet wound did, did you by know giving po- her tea. Did you know potions of healing are a real thing? It's still video game logic. This is not not important. It doesn't come up again. He just gives her magical healing tea, and then she leaves. Yeah, you could take this entire encounter out of the movie, and it wouldn't change anything. Like, if she just made the call, and then they cut to the meeting in Venice, it would read exactly the same. Yeah. It's weird. It's a weird moment. A lot of the weird moments in this, though, feel like sequel set up to me but then none of this stuff is used in the sequel <laughs> i don't know if i've seen the sequel yet personally but i do know that angelina jolie signed on to a three picture deal when she got hired for this movie oh jeez they only made two of them hmm still waiting for that third laura croft tomb raider movie with angelina jolie maybe they'll do the like dramatic 30 years later older woman action badass thing that they did with halloween <laughs> like um terminator Laura Croft, Tomb Raider, Dark Fate. Yeah. I would watch that movie, though. No joke. (laughs) That'd be amazing. Especially if you can get Daniel Craig back. Um, Anyways, she goes to Venice. They have that conversation we talked about earlier with the chairs and the knife throwing. And they agree to team up to get the last piece of the triangle, partially because the bad guy is like, you want to bring your dad back. I know you want to bring your dad back. If you don't work with me, you can't bring your dad back. And she's like, good point. Uh, so they go to Siberia, which is where the other thing was, which was shot on location in Iceland. Yeah, that did not look like Siberia to me. <laughs> no, it was it was Iceland. This is where Bryce makes an ass of himself by racistly trying to communicate in English that he wants to buy all of their dogs. Yeah. Yeah. Also, everybody's dressed up in like full winter parka gear because, you know, Siberia, except for Angelina Jolie, who is in like summer t-shirt and like... It's like a hoodie trench coat. That I was getting there. She's wearing like a normal t-shirt and like, sw- not sweatpants, but like gym pants. Leggings? Like, like they're yoga not pants? They're not leggings. They're like exercise pants. Yeah. Like you'd wear going for a run in the summer. Yeah. And a <laughs> hoodie that is like floor length with... A hood that is only partially covered in fur. It's not like a hood, like a fur hood, like you'd think. It's like a normal hoodie hood with some fur painted onto it. It's like the hood has a mohawk. (laughs) You're right. It's like the hood has its own mohawk. It's And the sides are just fabric. It's truly atrocious. Everything else she's wearing is fine throughout this movie. This is just awful. No, but this thing looks so stylish. 
and and not even Ex- just not only is there this like fur hoodie over the hood on her left arm and only her left arm is a chunk of fur on the outside of her coat that doesn't even go up to her elbow yeah it's not des- it is designed it looks like something i would see on a runway it does not look like something you would wear to do anything no and she looks freezing <laughs> Anyways, they get to a small Siberian village, and there's another magical native girl who... This time speaks to her in the native language. Yeah. Uh, just to say, hey, you shouldn't do this. You're, you shouldn't work so hard to bring your dad back from dead. And she's like, what the heck? And then the child is gone, and there's more jasmine flowers. That's the last of that. Who are these magical children? Where did they come from? How do they know these things? Where did what they go? What is their connection to Jasmine? Where did they go? Did her dad know about these magical children? <laughs> are they actual magical children or are they just ghosts? Are they like the forces of the people that made the triangle trying to defend the world from its power? We don't know. The movie doesn't seem to care. <laughs> also, mystical native child I'm 90% sure is a trope that exists and is bad. I will say this for this movie in particular. I don't know how many of the cliches and tropes and stereotypes that crop up in this movie existed when this movie came out. This one, Mm. though. This one for sure, but some of them. Some of them, yeah. Some of it is very recent pandering to Matrixing, though. Also, what's the over-under on? I want one of those kids, like the spoon kid in the Matrix. Can we have one of those? Mm. Ah, let's have two of those. Was that the thought process? Because I feel like that's the thought process here. That's that's an I don't know. Yeah. Like, anyways, they go to the second temple. This one has a planetarium. Which is dope. The the sets in this movie are actually really good. Or at least really good. Oh, yeah. They had a really good set designer on this movie, actually. And these sets were huge. Like, they built the interior of the temples and the uh, Venetian meeting hall. And half, I think, of the mansion were all sets built in uh, Pinewood Studios in London. So, yeah, they're, they're really good, elaborate, huge sets. So, yes, they come into the very cool temple, which kind of reminded me of Agra's house from yes. the Dark Crystal with the really big, cool planetarium, which is also a set I love. And there's these weird, glowy death lights. And yeah. a dog jumps through one of these lights. Notes I have on the death lights. So uh, the dog runs in, jumps through one of these lights. You can see its muscles and its skeleton, and then it comes out the other side and is fine, which we then get explained to us by one of the Illuminati people, I think, that these are time storms. No, it's Laura. Oh, no, it's Laura. Yeah, it's literally Laura Croft. We get explained to us that they are time storms. That doesn't answer why that just happened. Doesn't answer why that happened doesn't tell us what they do or where they came from, really. And they also don't add anything to the stakes of the scene because the dog was fine. Yeah, (laughs) they're just really weird. And two, it feels like one team developed this very cool effect where a dog jumps through a thing and all of its skin comes off because it does look very cool. And another team was like, well, how the heck do we get this into the movie? I guess, I don't know, time storms well what what does going through time have to do with all of your skin getting removed i don't know reasons i think their logic was probably it takes them apart 
because it well yeah it takes them apart on a like a fundamental level because it comes up it it does come up again once later on when she throws the magic clock into the time storm and it gets completely taken apart revealing the quartz crystal that is actually the core of the triangle of light but that's it yes but you can't skeletonize a dog i guess Yeah, like that's what should have happened if that's the mechanic. And the and dog should have been destroyed into its composite parts. And when she reaches into the time storm that the clock is in, she's completely fine. So yeah, uh, yeah. The time storm can only decompose one object at a time, and if it's in motion, it only kind of does it. Sure, why not? No, I think if it's organic, it only kind of does it. Because the clock, she yeeted it all the way into it. It was moving at high speed. (laughs) Anyways, the weird glowy time storms aside, uh, there's a big planetarium in the middle. And Lara Croft and Alex and all of the hench people jump on it to try to get the clock into the place it needs to be so that they can get the second half of the triangle this squishes a number of very incompetent guards who are very bad at their job because <laughs> it's not moving that fast because people actually had to be on it right right for the f- effect because it's a real set so these guys are just hanging out on top of these planets until they get squished by another one and knocked into the water yeah apparently this was a really complicated scene to shoot Because they had to, like, make sure that all of the staging timed out to where the things were moving. And it was this big prop that was hooked up to, like, four different hydraulic pumps that had their own power source. It was a real elaborate. And apparently they shot it all uh, in continuity. Like, they, they shot it all in order so that the continuity would match up and they wouldn't have to worry about, like, shooting scenes and then matching it later. That makes sense. Which That's smart. If you know anything about how you shoot, uh, how movies are shot, it's usually out of sequence because it's easier to shoot like specific actors or specific locations and get them shot first and then cutting them into other, other shots later. So shooting something in sequence is much more difficult in a editing sense, but logistically, when you have something that's complicated, it actually can make it easier. Yeah, the complexity of the scene unfortunately does kind of degrade the actual action of it a little bit, but mostly just with the, like, hench people. As far as Daniel Craig and Angelina Jolie are concerned, they are killing it. It's very cool when they're jumping around on planets and throwing each other things. Yeah, much like most of the characters in this movie, the hench people who are failing are just there to make Laura and Alex look cooler than they already do. Yeah, they don't actually need that help because it does look pretty cool anyways, but I guess it helps. They really wanted to play it out. So anyways, uh, Alex throws Lara the thing. She puts it in the spot. She teleports inside the sun of this model and gets the triangle piece. And then teleports out. Not near the sun, though. Teleports back out. Because she gets, like, sucked into it with, like, magic or whatever. But then she appears, like, 20 feet away. Yeah. For probably continuity editing purposes. Uh, The villain gets the triangle, but it doesn't put together right. So Laura yeets the clock into a time vortex, gets the last piece of it, shoves it in there, 
And then all of a sudden they're in like a psychic dream space of a pyramid. Well, they've gone back in time to before the city was ruined is is the idea. Okay. Is it? It's it's blue. I I definitely weird. got yeah. the like weird psychic space where they're like vying for control over the the triangle of light cuz there's nothing around the pyramid. It's just void with an eclipse and a triangle. Either way, she gets the triangle, and then we get her weirdly sterile scene between her and her father. <laughs> yeah. Well, again, I don't think that one was necessarily back in time. It seemed out of time. Yeah, I don't think she's like... It's it's an, ambiguous, yeah. Clearly her dad knows that she's he's been dead for a while, so it's yeah. some kind of like magic-y time sink thing. It doesn't really matter. She decides not to do the thing. She saves Daniel Craig from being stabbed. Oh, we skipped Daniel Craig being stabbed. Oh no! Before the time travel happens, Daniel Craig gets knifed in the chest. Yes, this is where the knife throwing comes back. Powell wants Laura to show him how to activate the triangle. So he just throws a knife at Daniel Craig, who then, okay, this is hilarious. So he gets stabbed in the chest, like around the heart, but clearly not in the heart. And he just limply, as if he died instantly, falls backwards into the water that is surrounding the uh, planetarium. And then doesn't make any moves as if he's alive until he gets caught in the gears under the water, and then he starts crying out. It's just a weird acting choice. And Laura, like, dives under to save him, but then doesn't actually save him and just makes out with him for a bit, and then she goes does the time travel thing. It's a weird moment. Uh, I definitely thought that what she was going for was to, like, give him oxygen long enough so that she could figure out how to get him out of the gears, but then she just doesn't go back for him. <laughs> she just leaves yeah, him there. It's, it's like, what? It. I can see that they're trying to, like, raise the stakes because, like, ooh, the the person she cares about is dying as a storytelling beat. It makes sense, but the execution is just weird on a number of levels. Anyways, she reverses that by stopping time right before the knife gets to him and flipping the knife around by grabbing the bladed end and pushing it really hard in time. And I just was looking at her like, girl, this is a 3d space. You can flip it the other way. (laughs) (laughs) And not cut your hand up. Like, she could she could have just turned it over vertically, and it would have been facing the other direction. Or at least it would have bounced off of his chest. Like, I don't know why pointing the knife the other direction makes it fly the other direction, but if we're assuming that, it'd work if you flipped it vertically and not horizontally. I actually think the vertical flip would be harder for her to do than the horizontal flip because she is grabbing the flat of the blade it's just that she wraps her fingers around it for some reason and I don't understand why she does that. you just grab the handle of the knife and push down on it Well she also grabs the handle of the knife. Grabbing a knife by the blade Yeah because she has to get leverage on it from both directions. It is far easier pushing something down than it is to push it around like that I don't know if I agree uh, in this instance, time but that's fine. With Mackenzie. <laughs> Welcome to the Physics of Time Travel, a podcast within a podcast. <laughs> why are you so stupid, Lara? Sorry. I don't know why this bothered me so much. It's just that she's like struggling so hard holding this knife with her bare hand. And it's just like, seemed like the other way would have been easier. 
Anyways. I also want to point out that the whole conversation she had with her dad was about how she shouldn't use the power of the triangle because it was too dangerous and her dad was telling her not to use it. And then she immediately goes back (laughs) and uses it to save Daniel Craig. Yes. Yeah. Minor point. Also another minor point here. This movie does have the Raiders of the Lost Ark problem of if she just hadn't shown up, nothing would have happened and it would have been fine. Because the Illuminati would have shown up to the first temple, Daniel Craig would have told them how to get into it wrong, they never would have gotten the triangle, and everything would have been fine for another 5,000 years. Oh, you're right. Yeah, she does have the added motivating factor that she wants to bring her dad back. I just think they needed to hit that a little harder. But yeah, you're right. Also, it is a little disappointing that this like solo action heroine has to be told the right thing to do by her dad at the end. Yeah. Like, she doesn't have a change of heart. She just gets told not to do things by her dad, and she listens. From there, she shoots the triangle. It's it's floating there in space yes. after um, after she fixes the, the knife, and she just shoots it, and the whole thing explodes, which is not at all what happened when the people who broke it in the first place smashed it with a sledgehammer. Eh, it's a sturdy thing the first time, <laughs> but the second time, it's just not going to hold up. Hmm. Uh... The villain tells Lara that he killed her dad, which cuts into the weirdest singular shot in the movie. Yeah. It cuts to this flashback sequence of her dad getting shot where it it is staged on the edge of a cliff, but it's all in these weird, dark blue, ethereal, otherworldly lights. And like everything is kind of and everything in the background. yeah it's all the camera movement is weird everything's spinning in the background and it looks like some kind of nightmare hellscape that this is happening in and it's just a very short shot of the two of them standing there and then John Voight gets shot and then it cuts back to the to the present and that's it yeah it's and the it's, whole shot and it's not like Laura's imagining it or, or something it's not like a oh, she's imagining it as this weird, crazy thing. It's just like that for reasons. Why do I have this written down? I have the note written down. Just shoot him, Lara. Why? (laughs) Oh, Oh, right. Because she gets over to the bad guy to like have their final confrontation. And he's got a gun aimed at her head. And she's got a gun aimed at his head. Two guns aimed at his head. And then he's like, let's not do this with weapons. And he puts down his guns. And I'm just like, Shoot him. Just shoot him, Lara. Why not? He was going to shoot you. <laughs> she also doesn't fully draw her guns until she's literally standing face to face with him. Yeah. They don't establish a like moral reason for her not to do this. It just seems like it's that moment at the end of Captain Marvel where the villain is like, you should fight me without your powers to prove you're worthy. But instead of just shooting him with her powers like Captain Marvel does, she agrees to the fist fight for no apparent reason. Yep. Even though previously she does do the very good joke of a bad guy comes up to her with a big sword and she just shoots it in the face, which is my favorite oh, yeah. thing. The direct Raiders in the Lost Ark reference. It's a good joke. It's a good joke, Steve. <laughs> it's a good joke. It's just like down to the, how the shot is staged and the way that the statue lifts the sword is exactly the shot from Raiders. I think it's intentional. Oh, I think I it is. I don't think you can make a movie like this without kind of paying some homage to Indy. Yeah. Uh, Although the director did say that 
the uh, one of the initial scripts there were two scripts that were rejected before he stepped in and decided he wanted to write it himself one of them he rejected because he thought it was just Raiders of the Lost Ark but with Lara Croft so he didn't like it I mean that's gonna happen yeah uh so she wins the fight with the bad guy and then leaves him to die she doesn't actually kill him she knocks him out no and then to escape the temple she goes dog skiing yep so the dogs were only really set up so that i guess in this last scene she could like coolly escape the temple by like having a dog team pull her while she's skiing to techno pop to techno just just on her shoes just on her shoes down a like luge cavern which is falling apart behind (laughs) her which feels again very video gamey yeah it's a it's a chase sequence for sure without any real chasing element and she's uh, hooting and hollering the whole time. She's having a great time. She's having a blast. It does seem like fun. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, anyways, she goes home, visits her dad's grave, gets some guns, freeze frame, movie's over. Mm-hmm. So that's Lara Croft's Tomb Raider. It does feel like a movie that thinks it's part of a wider franchise, but maybe that's just like looking back on it now. Clearly wants itself to be very cool and important. Yeah. In, in the interviews I was reading about this movie almost everybody involved was really convinced that this would be some kind of genre revolution touchstone that this was going to redefine the action movie it is a run-of-the-mill action movie with a couple better than average action sequences it's mostly riding on the charm of angelina jolie oh yeah very charming who is very charming and was a very good choice for this role apparently like everybody involved was instantly taken with having her in the lead, and they were right. She was a good pick. There was like half a dozen other Laras considered, though, right? I think it was mostly rumors, but there was a number of names. There were a number of names that were brought up pre-production. People like Jennifer Lopez, which would have been interesting as a choice. For some reason, that's the only one that's coming to mind. But there were a lot, though. Uh, oh, Jennifer Love Hewitt was one of them. Basically, uh, any brunette yeah. in the '90s. <laughs> Pretty much. Uh, Lexi, any additional thoughts on Lara Croft Tomb Raider? Uh, I have a few. They're mostly just like minor character things. Uh, one is there are parallels between her tech guy, whose name I still can't remember, uh, but her- Bryce. Bryce, and Mr. Powell's hench person. Oh yeah, we haven't mentioned Mr. Pibbs. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. M- Mr. Pibbs is there exclusively as a servant to Mr. Powell and exclusively as a com like the villainous comic relief except he himself isn't a villain he's just kind of a guy working for him and then is kind of a nice person who like he's just kind of around <laughs> yeah imagine a James Bond movie where Blofeld had a secretary that was constantly following him around who wasn't a bad guy but just <laughs> Was there sometimes. He's the most comparable, honestly, as far as what we've talked about, to the guy who's Eggman's sidekick in Sonic, but he's, like, less funny or important than that guy, who's also not important. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. He's ginger? Yeah. He has nice hair. He's got, like, nice flowing Mm -hmm. ginger hair. Um, and that's he's cute yeah he looks familiar but like i don't think he actually is familiar uh, that's about all there is to say about mr pips he he talks he mentions at one point when he 
I think it's when he, Laura meets him. It's like, my name is Mr. Pibbs. Uh, yes, like the drink. And yeah. um, he also, when the when Mr. Powell is talking to the Illuminati at the beginning of the movie, telling them, we're ready, we're almost in position to take the Triangle of Light, yada, yada. Um, they're walking out of the chamber and where Mr. Pibbs has been standing nervously holding a bunch of stuff. And he, and he asks Mr. Powell, we're not ready, are we? And he's just like, no, we're not. Yeah, he seems like a character who should be better than he is or more entertaining, but he only gets, he gets so few moments. Yeah. I just wish there was more of him. He's one of those many side characters in this movie where they're like, I wonder if this movie wasn't edited down quite a bit from something, like whether there was more comedic fluff in it earlier and they just kind of tightened it down a little. I ship Bryce and Mr. Pibbs. It wouldn't surprise me. (laughs) Bryce Pibbs. There's another character that keeps getting close-ups throughout the movie. Uh, One of the soldiers that infiltrates the mansion is named in one scene as Julius by Powell and gets several close-ups throughout the movie, but in no other way is important at all. No, he's just one of the goons. I think he's the head of the goons, but that's about it. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's, he gets it's, one very traumatic close-up in the rain. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's kind of like Captain Phasma from the Star Wars recent ones. But at least Captain Phasma like has an emotional connection to one of the characters, so you kind of get why they're focusing on it. This guy, like nobody knows who this guy is. It doesn't matter. Yeah. Uh, anyway, my other note is Laura Croft cannot cook. <laughs> That's <laughs> another weird moment. <laughs> yeah. She's on a phone call with the guy who directed her, who is directing her to Mr. Powell about the clocks. He's like a clockmaker, clock guy. I don't know. He he likes clocks. He's got a lot of clocks. And she's on the phone, and he sounds kind of nervous, like oh, you should talk to Mr. Powell, and I'm definitely not at gunpoint. And then behind her, the microwave just explodes with a TV dinner. And I thought it was a metaphor for this guy, you know, getting shot now that he's fulfilled his purpose. But no, a few, like a minute later, we see him in his office just being like kind of sad and apologizing to the air. Um to like Laura, it's like, oh boy, you've got to deal with all this now. And then we never see him again. Yeah, there's like a loud, there's a loud sploosh explosion sound. And you're like, oh no, he got like shot in the head. No, he's fine. I don't know why they need to show Laura Croft being unable to microwave something. <laughs> it's such a weird end to that scene. She just walks over to the microwave while she's on the phone. She picks up the meal and then she drops it in the garbage. <laughs> and that's the end of the scene. <laughs> That is the closest thing she has to a character flaw, I guess, is so incompetent at cooking she can't... Like, I feel like it's a she's not, like, normal girls who can cook kind of thing, but it's just, like, really weird and out of nowhere, and they don't ever talk about it again. It's, It's a weird character moment. It doesn't say anything about her, but it's, like, very focused on in the moment. Uh, anyways, Nathan, do you have any other thoughts about Lara Croft Tomb Raider? I do have one really interesting fact about it, which is that, uh, this production was a tax dodge. Oh, God, what? Okay, what? Let me, let me bring up the, 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 um bit about it in in the uh, article that I was reading because I want to get the facts of this right. So the movie was financed through Telemunchen Group, 
A German tax shelter. The tax law of Germany allowed the investors to take an instant deduction even on non-German productions, and even if it hadn't yet entered production. So the the, the filmmakers sold the copyright to Telemunchen Group and then bought it back from them for $83.8 million on the 94 they sold them to, meaning they made $10.2 million off of that. What? Then they did it again what? <laughs> to the Lombard Bank, which is a British investment group, and made a further $12 million. What? So this movie made a lot of money. <laughs> and then... <laughs> what? <laughs> to qualify for tax relief in the UK, they had to... Uh, include some UK filming locations and British actors. So that's part of the reason they they filmed part of it in the UK. And then they made pre-sale deals in Japan, Britain, France, Germany, Italy, and Spain, and made a further $65 million on pre-sale deals. What? And then... They paid the they, they sold the exclusive television rights to Showtime for another six point eight million dollars. This movie made way too much money through not being a movie that made money. <laughs> and then it did make money, right? Like, it was relatively popular. Yeah, I mean, I think that a lot of this money was, like, went back into the production. But this is, like, $94 million. That's shady as hell. <laughs> Laura Kreft, tax writer. Uh... So, yeah, that was something I came across. Y- um, you said so. Yeah, it so made ninety four million dollars just in weird tax things, in like yeah, tax dodging and like investing to specific groups and selling specific rights deals to different groups. Yeah, that's <laughs> bonkers. Uh, it turns out the most complicated <laughs> riddles to solve is international tax law. It's <laughs> uh, probably how Laura Croft's family made all their money. Let's be honest. I mean, yeah, that and you know, stealing price priceless sacred treasures and desecrating tombs. I'll give this movie another point. They don't really show a lot of raiding of cultural artifacts, considering it's called Tomb Raider, because the only two things that they, tombs that they go to, or not tombs even, temples that they go to are intentionally hidden, not cultural artifacts of the community because they were supposed to be forgotten. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I suppose. Um, which I guess is a workaround for that. Apparently the set designer actually went to Cambodia during pre-production when they were designing the sets and specifically looked at their cultural like hieroglyphs and symbols and deliberately didn't use any of them in the set designs because oh. he didn't want to offend anybody by destroying their like religious iconography. That's actually pretty cool. Yeah, it looks like a lot of care was taken in a lot of this film. Yeah. Also, apparently there was a really, really cool theme park ride for this at one of the like non Disney Universal parks for a while, but uh, it got like taken down years back because Laura Croft's Tomb Raider is no longer relevant. <laughs> yeah. Also, I think there was like rights problems because Paramount is the producer on this, which is a company that's shifted its allegiances as far as like. Um, licensing deals and publication is concerned, like, a lot. Uh, anyways, it is the time of the episode, you guys. The time of the episode where we have to give this movie a ranking and, uh, briefly say where it falls on our scale of video game movies. Who wants to start? Kenzie? Alright, I guess I will start then if y'all are not interested. Anyways, 
I'll reiterate what I said at the beginning. This movie's totally functional. If you want to just watch some cheesy popcorn action, you can do better, but it's not going to hurt you at all. Uh, I would probably put it pretty low on the list, though, because if you want to watch something fun and dumb, there are dumber, funner things to watch. And this isn't so much more competent that you shouldn't just watch a good action movie. Uh, So overall, I'll give it like two and a half temples out of five. Sounds fair. Nathan? Yeah, uh, this movie is mostly fine. There is a a consistency to the quality of the filmmaking, which isn't extensively high, but is at least carried through the whole production. You can tell that a lot of people cared about it, even if it isn't great. But overall, I agree there are better movies. There are better action movies to watch, and there are better bad movies to watch that are more fun to enjoy. So overall, it's just... It's what it is. There's nothing that special about it. I would give this, like, a 36C. (laughs) Um... Yeah, I mean, what you said, it's, I, I think I, I enjoyed this movie. Um, it's very one note of it's very cool, and I think it does cool very effectively. I also think that it translates video game mechanics into set pieces and scenes and stuff very well. Um, I will give it, like, four tiny robots destroying nine ancient artifacts. All right, there you have it, folks. Thank you for joining us for another video game, the movie, the podcast. Oh, before we go, I want to bring up one thing. I mentioned that there were two rejected scripts for this movie before they finally wrote the one that was made. The first script that Paramount rejected was written by Steven D'Souza, writer of Die Hard and Street Fighter. Oh, boy. Yeah, we possibly missed out on something very bad or very good with that track record. <laughs> yeah. D'Souza is a good writer. I will uh, I will die on that hill. <laughs> <laughs> we talked about Street Fighter. Go over his opinions in that episode if you want to see how hard he'll die for it. <laughs> Thank y'all for joining us today. This has been Video Game, the movie, the podcast. Thank you for joining us. My name is Mackenzie Easton. You can find me on Twitter at Kenzie Phoenix. My name is Nathan Bertram. You can find me on Twitter at Bert Nerdtram. And my name is Lexi Conwell or Alex Conwell. And you can find me on Twitter at Conwell underscore Alex or on Facebook at Alex Conwell Creative. Um, pretty soon you might be able to hear the three of us and another friend of ours, Will Leet, on a podcast called an actual play podcast called dice weave where we explore the mass effect universe as characters and do nerd nerdy things yes so look forward to that the twitter for the show is uh vgtm podcast i believe or you can just google us i'll probably get you there thank you for joining us again and this is game over until next time don't forget to save Press X to jump. Press F to See play you respect. at the next <laughs> checkpoint. <laughs> Until next time, press F to pay respects. You're right. That should be our sign off.